We read from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, as we begin our time here in the text itself. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus and Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Lord, we anticipate hearing from your word. Lord, we are thankful that it endures, it stands forever. Lord, that it spoke to a specific people in a specific time, and yet it speaks just as clearly and just as boldly and just as as winsomely to us today in our time. Lord, so might we receive it indeed as your spoken, true, and living word. Might you be with Pastor Adam as he declares it, Lord. Might he speak with a clear mind. Might he speak boldly. Might your spirit illumine to us your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. As I mentioned last week in the introduction to... uh, First Peter, the American church, this isn't simply a way, I want to say up front, this isn't a simple way to cast stones and throw them through the windows of other churches. I mean this as a member of the American church, a church in the United States of America, as a fellow Christian, as a fellow minister. So when I speak of that, I think collectively, we as a church, and, and I, I, I hope that some of these criticisms and critiques are not substantive here at Redeemer, but it's not to say that we don't share as a church in a collective need to be more precise, to wake up, to, to, to disciple, uh, to call out uh, error. And what I mean by that is we walk through this text this morning. I set it up by saying the American church is in a hard place. I mentioned last week our addiction to comfort. Um, again, not of others, but of my own. Addiction to comfort, lack of clear principles articulated in the church. I think if you listen to podcasts, which again, as a, as a minister here, I have a lot of opportunity to talk with many of you about different podcasts and different sermons, and we chat about those things and reflect upon them or criticize them um, and thinking of them. And if, if you take time to listen to podcasts or sermons and fill your time with them, I think you'll see, and I would say beware of the lack of communicating clear principle. The church is in a hard place. It's ambiguity of doctrine. We don't make statements, the church says. We have conversations. As well as among other things, not just, again, lack of clear principle, addiction to comfort personally, collectively, ecclesially, our ambiguity of doctrine, but also our mimicry of celebrity culture. Speaking with someone just earlier this morning, speaking about that. About how the church, when it mimics culture, it always does a poorer job. And it's always way behind the curve. But why play catch-up at all? All of these elements that we look and we would look at the um, diagnosis of the American church. Again, not to throw stones somewhere else, but to criticize the church as we too belong to her. 
has caused the church to drift. All of these different aspects of taking the temperature of the room and speaking clearly to the temperature in order to self-preserve has caused the church to drift away from theological moorings. Very few of us think about the church any longer as a place for theological discussion, theological truth, theological discipleship. And it's not simply about doctrinal dumbing down. It is greatly hurting the church. It's even more than just doctrinal problems that are facing the American church. The American church, we, again, we, together, as those who belong to her, we Christians have largely lost sight of God's purpose for his own glory as primary. How often have we spoke of that? Maybe, again, in ambiguity, um, uh, wherefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. So maybe we give assent to that. But how often have we really truly meditated about God's quest for his own glory? That we interpret culture, interpret providence, interpret data, that we interpret it as primarily about God. And his work, without my consideration, but his work for his own glorification. That seems to be foreign because we're so built on the self. But if we think, again, I would say that the church has lost sight of God's purpose for God's own glory. And then secondarily, not altogether austere and away from me, and somehow cold in its pursuit, but how my life graciously comes to share in that pursuit of glory by faith in Christ. So that faith in Christ is not simply a means for me to assent as a Christian and then pursue the life I truly want, which is my best one now. But believing that my best one now is my pursuit of God in Christ through faith, that is my best life now and my best life hereafter. But the church, I can't emphasize it enough, and, and, and I don't mean to be um, uh, constantly negative or, or, or pounding away at others. Again, I put us as believers, fellow Christians, who should be concerned not just about our church but the church, that the church is moving away from theological awareness. We'll note here in just a few moments, how often have we devotionally, prayerfully, worshipfully considered the doctrine of the Trinity? And I know it gets quickly. If you do, if you are a person who enjoys the gnarly aspects of theology and how quickly things can get way out into the weeds, the Trinity is the perfect spot for you to pick. I get that. It's not the simplest thing to wrap your minds around. But because of that, we as ministers, those in discipleship and fellow congregants and Christians altogether, drift away from the doctrine of the Trinity devotionally and worshipfully. And because of that, it has ramifications for sanctification, justification, our life and perseverance and faith, because we fail to perceive how God works, because we fail to see who God is. It's so important for us to consider that, and you'll see that as Peter begins with his signature in the letter. But the church is moving away from theological awareness. But it's not just that the church is drifting away from theological awareness and substance, but it's also what the church is moving toward that is of great concern. 
The new church substitute is moralistic, therapeutic trappings. Again, what it means for me therapeutically is what worship has been boiled down to. Worship and purpose of individual life becomes less about God's glory being exalted in and through my life, both in joy and in hardship, and it becomes more about my receiving an immediate therapeutic benefit for my attendance. We might justify not going to church because we don't feel different when we leave. And, 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 I, and I get some of that as a minister. I do get some of that and the need to communicate things that are in a way receivable and, and helpful. But you must look at your own expectations for what you want to hear and what moves you and what strengthens you, what truly nourishes you. I fear it's way down on the scale of therapeutic then substantively theological that will make sense of your providence because you rightly interpret it theologically, robustly, not simply or even easily, but rightly and through faith. Thus, as I think of the people who are in modern-day Turkey, not those today, but those who Peter is writing to. Those areas listed I mentioned to you last week, Pontius, Galatia, of which you know Galatia because from Galatians we spent time there, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. If you were to go on a map, a modern map, and you look up above the Black Sea area, so across from Europe in the Black Sea, and you look up kind of uh, what that would be north uh, east, you'll find Turkey. And if you look at Turkey, these regions here early on are essentially modern Turkey is where he's writing. And as he writes to them and thinks of them, he speaks to them of how to interpret their providence. And yet to the church today who is obsessed with therapeutics, Learning to understand as the church that Peter writes to in his epistle, that hardship, or as Peter describes it, even fiery trials, are designed by God for his glory first, which doesn't answer to me. And yet through faith I receive, whether in ease or in hardship, that providence is for my good, even though be hard is almost impossible for the modern church to hear. Because we flip the script for decades now. The answer to dry worship, as we critiqued it, was to make me the center of it. Therefore, it seems placebo-wise to no longer be so dry because I feel better about it. So where do we begin? How do we, and I'm speaking to each of us this morning, again, yes, the broader church we need to have in our mind because we should be irenic in the way we view the American church. We belong to it. We belong to her. And so do they. And together, this should concern us all. So how do we, though, here right at Redeemer this morning, how do we perceive, how do we move forward, how do we get to be reoriented? 
How do we transition away from obsession of therapeutic self and toward, so, so again, it's not just the absence of God, uh, the, the absence of theology, but it's the absence of theology and the running toward the therapeutic. So how do we return away from the therapeutic and not just into nothing, but away from the therapeutic and toward God? How do we begin to consider providence as primarily the work of God for his glory? How do we perceive reality correctly? Peter perfectly sets the agenda. I want you to see how. Um, as, as, and remember the context of the people that he's writing to. We covered it briefly by intro last week, and that is those who are in a difficult, difficult spot in life. So immediately you're thinking of people in hardship, yourself facing various hardships. And again, it's on a scale, and it's of different kinds and different types. But if you're alive, you face hardship, just the way that it is. Life is, my wife and I have been talking a lot, that life is hard. It just, it is. And, and, and each one of us can look and be like, well, it's not so hard for you and you and you. It's just hard. There's no reason to compare. As we saw between John, the disciple, and Peter and our Lord, said, what I'm doing in their life, what does it have to do with me and you? Each person isn't to look across who has it easier and who has it harder. And therefore, we can all just kind of complain to each other, and then we concede to certain people, yeah, you have it way worse than me. What am I doing about coming? Each person, if you're alive, you face hardship. So how do I interpret my life in light of circumstantial hardship? How do I do it? The question is, if we gather for worship, and the answer is Therapeutics. That's how. I'll make you think you're more important than you are. You'll feel better, and then you'll leave, and you'll somehow do better. Or, as Peter writes, is he giving us a script here to think and to interpret clearly about providence? If I'm in a hard place, what is my reflexive thought? What is my reflexive prayer? Peter gives us a good start. I want to stop right away, but I'm going to read the very first phrase there in verse 1, and I want to stop just to introduce the text. Notice Peter. His signature, right, beginning here as he writes to a church in a hard place. And so he's writing, thinking, what do they need to hear from me? How can I minister to them? Well, first of all, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I want you to notice immediately if you stop right there with the signature of introduction. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Notice immediately how we are moved toward the purpose, and I'll point it out to you. We'll walk through this bit by bit, piece by piece. We are immediately, by his signature, introduced to the purpose and the expected content of the letter. How so? I want you to see that, right? So Peter... And what you're supposed to read from this, uh, this, uh, this very important statement, an apostle of Jesus Christ, he is telling you immediately to the church of hardship the purpose and the expected content of the letter. How so? Well, you see, apostle, by very definition, is a messenger. You know this very clearly, but it's significant of how he writes it here. He is a messenger. This is the first thing he wants to say to a church who's about to open the script and read it for their own benefit. I want you to know myself of how I conceive of myself. I'm a messenger, one who is sent on behalf of another. That is, I am simply an emissary. That's who I am to you. You see, Peter is making clear with the signature that he has been commissioned by Jesus Christ to teach and to communicate to the church of Christ 
not his own doctrine. Think about the church now. How, how will we begin to be reoriented? How will we begin to shift and turn the script away from where our gaze typically is, me, to, to, to thee? How, how, do we, how, how, do we, how do we make that transition as we hear? Peter is saying this. This is who I am. I have been commissioned by Christ to teach and to communicate not my own doctrine, not my own pet peeves, not my particular birds in my particular saddle. But rather, as I conceive of my own mission to the church of hardship, my work is that I've been commissioned by Christ to preach about Christ. We're not making too much of the signature. Sure, it's credentialing. Peter, you know who I am, an apostle of Jesus Christ. But that's full of meaning for the mission of what Peter is setting about to do for the church of hardship. It is credentialing, but it's commissioning. And it gestures towards content. Luther adds to the introduction, by mentioning he himself, his First foot forward to them, to the church of Jesus Christ. Peter, this is who I am, but this is how I conceive of my ministry. Luther comments, quote, take note that all who preach human doctrines are immediately excluded here. Again, we're not making too much of the signature. It is credentialing, it is commissioning, and it's gesturing towards content. Luther continues, for he who carries out what Christ has commanded is a messenger of Jesus Christ. If he preaches anything else, he is not a messenger of Jesus Christ. And therefore, we should not listen to him. Again, to the evaluations of the American church at large, Redeemer as a microcosm, the assessment of how we or anyone else is doing must start from this standpoint. Here's our primary question. As we think of what is worship, what, what, what do I need to hear when I gather on Lord's Day? What should be the expectation as a, as a congregant or a parishioner when I attend from my minister? What should ministers prepare weekly to do? In other words, what are we all here for? It must start with this question. Who, if we were to say, what is Redeemer about? What am I about as an individual Christian? What are my expectations on Lord's Day? The question, as outlined by Peter's signature, is who or what is the content of our preaching? That's the question, right, on therapeutics is an assessment of anthropology. Do we gather just simply to like work various laws of psychology upon one another so that we can you know, flip the brain to feel better when the person leaves? That we've introduced psychological categories that will help you be a better you? Or, or, or are we interested in you being a better you, me being a better me, and finding that source remains outside of us by his enabling strength taking up residence within us. And as we focus on him as the terminal point, we are a better us. 
Kevin DeYoung writes this. He says, quote, The chief theological task now facing the Western church. And think of that introduction. I, I won't keep pausing, but think of it. When, if, if somebody really says, you'd have to buy into this, the, the chief theological task, right? So you're not saying, like, it's a good one among others. You're saying that the chief theological task, what is it? Kevin DeYoung, looking at the church, says the chief theological task now facing the Western church, the entire Western church, is not to reinvent or to be relevant, but to remember. We must remember, he says, the old, old story. This is the mark of a faithful minister who preaches it. The old, old story proclaims the gospel to people in need of nourishment. That you don't think of the gospel through the pulpit ministry as something you've heard before. And you already received before. And so you need something different to now be fed. But, but it's about a remembrance of that same old, old story. It needs to be continuously, daily, hourly remembered. It's the mark of a faithful minister who will preach it, and it's the mark of a faithful church who will truly receive it. It's not all about the ministers. It's about the members. It's about your assessment. Will the church of Jesus Christ even tolerate the old, old story any longer? It's the exposition of the old, old story which will liberate the church from the moralistic therapeutic trap. And that trap begins by asking the question, when I attend worship, or I conceive of worship, or I look to my providence to make sense of my life, the primary question cannot be, what's in it for me? Because then, it's not that worship isn't for you. It's your greatest good in passing your time as a pilgrim. It is your worship of God. It is in it for you. But we're asking it in a different way. We're asking it therapeutically. What's my immediate return? Notice how this sense of ministerial purpose, Peter, an apostle, an emissary, not for my own sake or of my own content, but, but I'm bound. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. And this sense of ministerial purpose then begins to shape how he speaks. Um, because of his content and what he desires to communicate, it shapes then how he conceives of the church he writes to. Notice how he speaks of them very clearly, doctrinally. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion and Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Taking this section here piece by piece, notice first, this is so important that we get it right. Notice first the grounds of their identity. In other words, as they open the script and they begin reading, Peter is sent of Jesus Christ 
and as a messenger of Jesus Christ, whose content also belonging to his ministry is that of Jesus Christ, he addresses me in theological language. Why? Why is Peter's thought for me my eternal identity? What about all the things I'm, ta- I'm facing temporally? Is it just, I don't know, just he thought that was a good introduction? Was it that easy? Was it just a good writer? Or is it important that you receive your providence in theological terms? That you conceive of who you are as a man, as a woman, as a family, in theological terms. Again, the grounds of their identity of which Peter teaches us here about the grounds of our identity in time, about the grounds of their identity of time, is not their physical status. We have so much talk today about identity politics. There's so much discussion about various groups and ethnicities and breakdowns and geography and economics. Everything is about some sort of physical attribute and external to us. And we make that always the, the, the centerpiece of our story. The ground of our identity as the people of God is not our physical attributes or our physical status. Again, not to say that Physical life doesn't matter to the church. Yes, it, it certainly does. But the question is of tiers of identity. Is it your primary identity? Is it your secondary identity? Is it your tertiary identity? I fear that we, as much as culture, so also in the church, make our physical attributes or external material identity our primary one. Again, it's not that it doesn't matter. Notice clearly, Peter locates them in time and space. They belong to a geographical location. Pontius, there's a human being in Galatia. There's a human being noted as uh, abiding in Cappadocia, those in Asia, in Bithynia. He indeed identifies their physical life and locates them in space and time. But it is not the grounds of their identity. The ground of their identity is not physical status as though they were geographically elected to be exiles. You're elect to be in Pontius. You're elect to be in Galatia. You're you're geographically elected, but rather the ground of their identity is their spiritual election. There are those who are in a hard place who need to be reminded of their true destiny and identity. There are those in a hard place in Asia who are indeed exiles, but of the spiritual kind. They are exiles who must conceive of their primary attribute as belonging to God. This, I hope you receive, and at least lay it to conscience to communicate, to argue, to deliberate over, this is the identity politics of the church. It's the opposite of victim consciousness and circumstance. Not that life isn't complex. We've covered this a million times. It's it's not that we must be unconcerned about circumstance in life and in providence. The question is not do we become concerned, but the question is what do we see first? 
It has to be this. It has to be. And I, I know the church takes a lot of criticism over emphasizing things eternal at the expense of things temporal. And perhaps it's not at the expense of, but it has to be. You have to figure it out. I have to figure out. We together, the church, have to figure it out. Where is it, though, in our quest for what is most important and significant about being human? We have to figure this out. Peter gives us what I think to be a solid understanding of where you begin to interact in difficult providence. You figure out to whom do I belong. Who is God? Who orders my providence? And how do I live concurrent with it? It's not... I notice the first thing about my hardship is all of my physical attributes and identity parts. But rather, I recognize life is hard indeed. And if I am to persevere in it, I will only do so by faith in my relationship to God, to whom I belong. Note carefully the meaning of the term election, or the term elect. As many of you know, Reformed Christians know this well, but we need to be once again nourished upon it. It's been a long time since we spoke specifically of election as we work through expositions. But again, election speaks to the church, to you, individual believer who has exercised faith in Christ this hour. You gather on this Lord's Day as the elect of God. If you have exercised faith in Christ, this is who you are. Election speaks to the church of the unconditional love of God in Christ, insisting that the initiative of our salvation always rests with God. Indeed, when we speak of being saved, we must mean it. We have been acted upon. We have been saved. We must push away a psychology of self that indicates and gives false senses of assurance, I probably calibrated it right and made the best decision. But rather, we must receive our primary identity is that we belong to God, not by self, but by the love of God in Christ who took the initiative of my life. One author makes this comment about election Speaking here specifically of how Peter uses it, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are in a hard place. No, no, no. Yes, I get you're in a hard place. This is who you are, though. Don't forget it. You can persevere by these means. You're elect. How do I conceive of my journey in time in Galatia as an exile? Belonging to who? To God. As I mentioned, one author speaking of the way Peter uses the introduction here, he says, quote, it simply means that God loved us in Christ before we were ever born and will always love us so. Peter wants those in hardship to remember this. This is not moralism. This isn't therapeutic deism where we gather and we see God as a genie upon which we rub, and then we feel better because we were given good talking points regarding the self, and we feel rather fulfilled. 
because we came and tended to be so fulfilled on self, we were nourished upon ourselves and we leave feeling good about ourselves. The question is, who do we feel good by? By what means? By my own? No, it's not moralism. God is not your co-pilot. God is your sovereign. And it's in him through faith you will find identity and perseverance included in the gift of salvation. And you should know this, of course, as a Christian, but maybe need to be reminded of it once again, to revel in it, to rejoice over it. But included in your gift of salvation by God's unconditional election is the gift of your sanctification. You remember, when you, when you lay hold of Christ through faith, remember faith, as we've covered multiple times in Galatians, is an empty vessel. The best conception of faith is that it's this empty vessel. And this empty vessel of faith comes to rest upon Christ. Therein is so fulfilled that my faith rests upon him. Faith is not a work, it's a vessel. I appropriate Christ as I rest upon him for salvation. And remember, as I rest upon him, I don't you know, come to share in part of him. And maybe he kind of knows me. I'm pretty sure of that, but I doubt it often. Remember, when, when you lay hold of Christ, you lay hold of Christ and all his benefits. No one here has part of him. And you should doubt the rest of him. But if you have him, you are wed to him so as to embody by his spirit all of him and his benefits. This is what Peter wants you, me, to remember in our times of interpreting providence. I'll conclude here in just a moment as we look at verse 2 then. According, so I'll start at the top so you can see the whole entire flow as he speaks to you this morning of Christ and all of his benefits so that you would conceive indeed of yourself this way on Lord's Day. Peter, an emissary of Jesus Christ, an apostle. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. But I, you were elected how? According to the foreknowledge of God. The Father. In the holiness of the Spirit. For obedience to Jesus Christ. I was elected how? I, you were elected in holiness for what intent? That you would obey Jesus Christ. What does it mean to obey him? To share in the sprinkling with his blood. There are many important things that we could speak of here in just this short text, and I hope that you take time to meditate upon him as a Christian. There are many glorious things here that we could spend weeks upon, which you'd think I'm given to do, but I'm going to try not. There are just at least two, if I could leave them with you, two very important things for us to recognize about verse 2, and they are number one. God's gracious intent and divine purpose in your unconditional election is that you would come to share in his holiness. It, it, God elected you, who is the Father. And he didn't elect you in a vacuum, but in the Spirit. In what manifestation aspect of Spirit, the sanctification of the Spirit, God's gracious intent and divine purpose in you being a Christian is that you should share in his holiness. Number two, 
I, I think you can look at number one, before I move on, just look at number one and think of all of your frustration and sanctification. I mean, all of us have loads of it. But it's God's intent outside of my decision, he electing me for an intended outcome, and that is that I would be redeemed and share in his holiness. It's his intent in my life. Find measures of encouragement there. Number two, this gracious intent and divine purpose is established, as Peter says, accomplished, as Peter says, and continually applied, as Peter says, to your life by God, the Trinity. Take time to recognize the Trinitarian role in this text and in your life. The role of the Trinity in Christian doctrines that I mentioned to you before, it can be a hard one. And it can lack persuasiveness when people talk about it because it gets so confusing and so tricky to understand. But what, has what, is, what that has caused the church to do is to move away from understanding and laboring over the doctrine of Trinity for its joy, for its devotion, for its power in our prayer lives, for our time and worship. The doctrine of the Trinity, according to Peter, needs to be more fully expounded upon. We need to be a Trinitarian people. It helps make sense of our life. Where does our faith terminate? On the Savior, Jesus Christ. Who energizes my faith that it would so be terminated there? His Holy Spirit in my life. Who is orchestrating my entire life from beginning to end? God the Father. How many gods are there? There is but one God. Contained in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And all of them, each and the one are in it for my good according to his glory. You see, in summary then, God is committed. If we look at this text and we simply say he elected me in the holiness of the spirit that I would obey Jesus Christ's gospel and thereby be sprinkled by his blood. God is committed to the salvation and sanctifying experience of my life. What is the implication of that? Or my ethical response must be in gratitude. I also must be committed to the maintenance of my salvation and sanctification in my life. I, I, I have, that, that, that's the ethical implication that naturally flows. That God is so by Father, Son, and Spirit committed to the salvation of my life and the continual sanctification of my life. The response ethically has to be A, gratitude, B, perseverance. I can't look that he's invested and not be invested. But that would be an impetus for my investment. This is his purpose of electing me, that I would be a trophy of his grace. In sum, then, God's electing purpose of grace and holiness in my life needs to drive my life's purpose how I interpret providence and hardship, how I receive of joy and gratitude. In some, it needs to be my identity. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, tell me something about my hardship. I have to tell you who you are. Never forget, to those who are elect, exiles, 
of the dispersion, Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, how am I elected according to the foreknowledge of God? This is who you are in time according to what God has determined before time began. God the Father. And it, it, it's in the sanctification or the holiness of the Spirit. What did he elect me unto? Obedience and holiness in Jesus Christ for the sprinkling with his blood. What will this add to my life if I, ra if I lay hold of it? Grace and peace will be multiplied to you. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would aid our understanding of your eternal decrees. At first, we would not be a church who shares in the uh, atmosphere of laziness, but we would grow to, 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 yes, be helpful in speech and winsome in the way that we interact, but we would be forthwith, that we'd be honest and integral, that we'd be doctrinal as a church, that we'd understand the God that we worship, your work in salvation, the perseverance and the gift of the Holy Spirit in our faith and our life, and that it wouldn't be something we just constantly hear and we then kind of receive and move forward, but we would interpret our providence in hardship and in joy and in ease by that identity that we belong to you. Let us desire your glory more than we did before we came in here. In Christ's name we pray, amen.